Michelle. Hi, I'm Caitlin. Welcome to Better Words. Hey, Michelle, how are you going? Hey, Caitlin, how are you? I am tired. (laughs) How is your new Sydney life? Tiring. (laughs) Um, No, I'm, you know, hopefully I'll be settling in a bit better and everything soon, but I'm just... You know, I've had like two days at my new job. I was unpacking all weekend. I have, you know, managed to clear some sort of a path through my unit so I can walk around. But, um, you know, everything's just pretty chaotic still. Yeah, understandably. If anyone missed the last episode, Caitlin is now in the HarperCollins marketing team, which is amazing. Yeah, sure am. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> Did you kind of feel like it wasn't real until you started work? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, I couldn't believe what I was actually, you know, packing and everything and moving for. And then I was like getting on the train and I went into work and I got there and I was like, I'm here. And they're like, this is your desk. And I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want me to leave now? Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) oh that's so exciting something like Like, that oh literally just so exciting and you get to be surrounded by books all day like oh literally there's I mean I'm sure you I'm sure you can imagine but there are bookshelves and books all over the office (laughs) (laughs) the dream the absolute dream um pretty cool (laughs) we're gonna do something a little bit different today Yes, we are. Um, there's no interview in this episode. We're doing, um, throwing it back to when we used to do these like spilling the tea episodes. So I don't know how many times we've done this. This might be spilling the tea three or four. Yeah, I think so. Did you? I don't know. I should have checked. I didn't actually look. Yeah. Why would that's I do right. any research? My God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did plenty of research actually. So this Yeah, we is... actually did lots of research for the topic. Yeah. So we're going to We're talk well about... prepared, so we're gonna get stuck into it. <laughs> we're gonna talk about a couple of um big topics and then like some fun ones as well. So yes, let's kick things off with like the serious one, but also timely because August ten in Australia is Love Your Bookshop Day. Yeah, and that kind of started as a response to, um, I guess, the number of independent bookstores that were struggling um, in the wake of like chain bookstores. And in Australia, particularly, I think in terms of online selling like book depository, um, mm. it's a little bit different in the UK. And this is where it's so interesting to finally talk to you about this stuff, because we both have new perspectives, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know well um you know like a few of the girls at work have now asked me you know it's like oh do you have a favorite bookshop and I'm like well no because there's not one in Rockhampton so Mm -hmm. I don't know where to go but um very different here there's plenty of bookshops here but yes you go first (laughs) well I just think yeah we we have a totally different opinion too because we both lived in a place where there wasn't a bookshop so if you wanted to buy books, you do have to go to chains like Big W or Target or Kmart or eventually when we finally got a bookshop, it was QBD, um, mm. which I think is still independent but obviously is not as good as going to an independent independent. Um, yeah, exactly. It's still a chain of bookstores. 
Yeah, yeah. But like when you don't have anything else, it's better to, I guess, support local people who work there. Um, mm. So I know that we tried to we tried to go there a lot. And I definitely curtailed my book depository habit when I realised how bad it was. In England, it's, it's a very different landscape um, because the main book chain, I guess, a bit like maybe like a Dimmix, is Waterstones. So mm-hmm. that is huge over here and Waterstones is often blamed for the closure of a lot of independent bookstores. So the reason we're talking about this today is because there was an article in The Guardian, actually it was The Observer, um, <laughs> on Sunday the 4th of August where the founder of Waterstones, um, Tim Waterstone, he founded the the bookstore in 1982 and it eventually became this huge nationwide chain. He said he feels no guilt over the aggressive expansion of his chain, which led to the closure of nearly 500 independent bookshops in the UK. So his perspective is they had a chance. I don't feel guilty about it. Um, he says he isn't personally responsible for closing down too many independent bookshops. Um, he said the truth about Waterstones is when it started, it was the smallest independent bookstore you could possibly books. Gosh, I try that. Again. The smallest independent bookseller you could possibly imagine. Thank you. And I pulled that same quote because I thought that that was a really good point. Is that when we yeah. talk about these little independent bookstores, or when you think of any other chain thing, like you know, like fast food restaurants are also a great example of this. They were all one shop once. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that some of those people who started, you know, the first Waterstones or the first Kentucky Fried Chicken Bar or the first Pizza Hut, you know, restaurant or whatever, I don't know, did something and opened another store and then another one and then another one. Well, and actually, this is this is where I wanted to just jump in and say if movie recommendation, if you haven't watched The Founder watch the founder because it is all about mcdonald's and how that oh became god. the it chain sounds that it so is. interesting <laughs> my god it's on netflix in australia you definitely have to watch it it's wonderful amazing cast um but what was interesting about that is it wasn't the founders of mcdonald's who had the drive to make it what it is today it was this guy who came in and basically took over and, and I essentially stole their idea but that my my first point for this discussion was I guess it comes down to having to have a certain type of mentality to be a, air quotes, successful business person. I think mm. you do have to be quite ruthless to, to get to the position where you have a, a, a chain of – a national chain of bookshops. Yeah, that has whatever percent market quite, share. Yeah, yeah. Like you are going to be quite, um, you are going to be ruthless because empathy doesn't get you very far in business, I don't think, um, in terms of money anyway. Like obviously it's different for ethical businesses and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, not that Waterstones isn't ethical. I just meant where the main selling point of your business is the ethics. Um, but I think what's really interesting too is, is that the same sort of thing as, you know, they do say that, all politicians are, have got to be narcissists to be able to put themselves in that position. Is it the same sort of thing where if you're going to get to that point that Waterstones is at now or, you know, 
to the point where it's being sold for $300 million or 40. It was actually, sorry, it was first sold in 1993 for 47 million pounds. Um, I'm still getting confused between those two things. Um, <laughs> and then it was later sold in 1998. So it was bought by WH Smith, which is another huge chain over here of like, I would say cheap sort of station, a bit office works feel um, oh, okay. for the Aussies. Um, so it's bought by WH Smith and then it was sold in 1998 to HMV Media and I think that they had like, I think that's like a JB Hi-Fi sort of equivalent of like record stores. But that was then sold in 1998 for $300 million. But Tim Waterstone was still the chair of the business until he stepped down in 2001. It was then acquired by a Russian businessman in 2011 for only $53 million. And I say only because that is a huge difference between $300 million and $53 million. Um, but I guess to the point where you're talking about selling your business for the millions, you have to have a lot of business acumen and, yeah, caring about whether – Bob down the road with his independent bookstore is, is going to be able to feed his family is probably not on your agenda. A hundred percent. It's not. And, you know, I think the thing with these, you know, or like the chains versus the independent bookstores is, you know, as you just said, once they get sort of to a certain size and maybe they get an offer, it's always from these other larger companies. Like when you mm. think about all of the companies who are parent companies that own all of these things, even like, you know, to take a comparison to like tech, I guess, like Facebook owns mm -hmm. Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, like so much, like so much more. I don't even know, but you know, they own all of those things and people often think that, you know, it's like, oh, they're competitors. Everyone says, oh, no one's on Facebook. Instagram's the cool one. And it's like, well, they're owned by the same person, so it doesn't yeah. matter. Mm, but Exactly. Yeah. And so, it's the same because WH Smith sells books for way cheaper than Waterstones does, but they're oh, – well, they're not anymore, but they were owned by the same person. Um, yeah. I think the other thing, the other discussion I'd like to have with you around this is who's really at fault because when you get a company as big as Waterstones, obviously they can offer – better prices because they have the bigger buying power. The other thing that Waterstones is doing over here, which has angered a lot of indie businesses, is they provide like Waterstones exclusive exclusive signed copies. They might have exclusive copies with sprayed edges. Um, they might have oh, – I bought a book Barnes the other and day. Barnes & Noble does the same thing in the US. Yeah. They have a lot of – like there's like Barnes & Noble special editions of books and yeah. like even – when I went to the US last year, our friend Indy um, bought the latest Sarah J Maas book from a Barnes & Noble because it had, like, this poster or something that came with it. Like, there's yeah. those extra things that these chains are able to do and work with publishers to do to then bring in the customers again, I guess. Yeah. So then the question, I guess, is, and it's the same when you talk about, like, fast fashion. Like, who is at fault? Is it the consumer for buying that or is it the brand oh. marketing stuff? No, it is, like, if we're, you know, going to say that, definitely the brand because mm 
as someone who's done a marketing degree, you know, <laughs> like all the textbooks basically say, you know, consumers don't know what they want. They are told what they want mm-hmm. via all of these different marketing channels. And in the case of, you know, your Waterstones or your Barnes & Noble, what we're told we want is the special edition or the poster that comes with the book or signed copy with like the sticker or whatever on the cover. Like mm-hmm. it's those things. And I love that you can like hit me with all the marketing stuff. This is great. This is so well, interesting. Well, it's true because I don't know. I'm trying to I'm talking about Waterstones and Barnes and Noble. And I guess the comparison here is like Dimmick's. Yeah, but um, Dimmix, I think. But not, not let me even. Do a quick I don't know. Search. Dimmix is still Australian owned, I think. Um, well, they're I still think... a quite a large company, and yeah, but they they're not. Um, see, I still didn't have a problem buying from them because I was like, you know, it's it's still an Australian company. I'm not sending it to like Coles or something. Um, and right. Then, so is your is your Dimmicks issue with Waterstones that it's currently owned by some kind of foreign investor company like it's not owned by a a UK person it's yeah I think it's less about it's less about that because that sounds very xenophobic um I guess the difference is Dimmicks don't do like Dimmicks special editions whereas here I've just noticed so much here the difference like I picked up a book the other day from Waterstones and yes I bought it at Waterstones because I couldn't find an independent bookshop and I wanted to get something while we were in Leeds um and Mm. it has it's signed and then Waterstones exclusive includes deleted scenes from the author so like that's not why I didn't even realize that was the thing with books I don't think I've ever gotten a book with a deleted scene it's not a know, movie. But see, and then, like, <laughs> other ones will just be signed. And then other ones, like, they had copies of the flat share, Waterstones exclusive mm. with sprayed edges, with pink sprayed edges. And that is obviously a very, very clever, very powerful, like, the exclusivity thing is obviously a very powerful marketing technique. And I've never seen Dimmix do that. Like, Dimmix have offers where it's, like, buy two, get one half price or whatever. Yeah, Dimmix often also will have signed books but um yeah but that's not they I think that's a little bit different too I've actually never seen it marketed in the same way where it's like stickers on all the books in Dimex where I have I have seen on like Booktopia they they do signed copies and I know that they get authors like I got a signed copy of Carly Finlay's book um from from there because I know Carly and I knew I wouldn't be getting to see her to sign a book and I wanted my copy signed um and, and so I bought from Booktopia, and I think Booktopia is um, Australian as well. So it's less about who owns it, and I think it's more the fact that they use these very aggressive tactics to to compete with independent brands in a way that it's, it's, it's not a level playing field, I guess. But then Interesting I guess you, say you say that, that exact sentence because I have another cool example. This is a really random thing that I actually saw on – a current affair in the five minutes before the block started the other night. Because no one actually but, watches a current affair. I mean, I don't know if you do. That's your decision. But yeah. Oh, gosh. But, Please. Um, but it was this little chicken shop. I actually forget what it's called. But basically, like, you know, like fried chicken, chicken sandwiches, like 
you know, probably like hot chips. I don't really know what the deal was. But this like chicken shop, I think they said the man owned three sort of spotted around Melbourne, like Mm. three of the – I forget what his company was called now. But at one of the shops, the door like to the shop has this like giant wall next to it. Like that's the back of some other building, I guess. Um, Maybe the door for that part whatever's behind that wall is around the corner. I don't know. But KFC put a giant, like, mural that said, like, you know, KFC 20 metres up the road or whatever, (gasps) right next to this fence chicken shop. And he he was like, this is purposeful. It's, you know, ridiculous. Like, you can't – have like the other thing, a that, that three just... meter tall banner basically next to my front door and be like, don't go into this chicken shop, go to KFC. But you know, the other irrational thing about that is like, as if that guy was making enough money to actually compete with KFC. Like exactly. people are going to go to KFC to put, oh, that is just, that's pissed me right off. Yeah. And that like, is I ridiculous. saw that and I was like, that's ridiculous. And you know, yeah. like I generally... As, you know, marketing, I generally think it's really funny when you see the signs on the street or whatever that say, like, oh, you know, Woolworths in in the next suburb or whatever, and you're right out front of a Coles. Or, you know, like, even when you Mm. are grocery shopping and you see someone in a Coles uniform in a Woolworths and you're like, what are you doing? (laughs) So funny. But, like, generally I find those things amusing. But the size of this banner, like this whole wall... It was ridiculous. And he said he'd been noticing more and more KFC signage near his store. So they're clearly targeting his customers. Mm. Whatever that happens, you know, however that happens to work, because honestly, like, I don't know, but I'm assuming KFC would have basically like a national advertising team. Mm. How they choose where these you know, billboards and wall mural things go. I don't know. But if they thought, oh, look, here's a tiny little chicken shop. Let's put one right there. It's just, it's so unnecessary. Um, And obviously every aspect of business these days is dealing with, you know, big chains and online versus people shopping in the high street, as they say in England. Um, You know, Everyone is dealing with that. It's just, it seems, I mean, I guess we're very, very open to it because we are so invested in books. And so something I personally try to do is I try to only shop at independent bookstores. Obviously, I go into Waterstones. And the other thing is, is it better for me to go into my local Waterstones because I don't have a local independent bookstore because those people live in my town and work in my town and you know, I'm I'm supporting that and keeping that open and keeping them in a job. It's a bit of an ethical sort of minefield, really. Yeah. yeah. I know that both in England um, they have, like, independent books, bookstore day, Love Your Bookshop Day is Australian, um, and they, they are having campaigns where indies basically band together, try and offer some exclusive content, and that's – I think the way forward is for indie shops to band together because they are not competing with each other. They are competing with – the monster that is Waterstones. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. 
Everyone go and um, love your bookshop on Love Your Bookshop Day. I think Caitlin should go to Better Red Than Dead in Newtown because <laughs> that is one of my favourite bookshops. So that can be your new favourite bookshop, Caitlin. Yeah, I'll <laughs> let you know. I'm excited to see where you go. Or do you want to do, like, do you want to dive into the next big topic or something fun? Let's do a fun one first and have okay. a quick chat about cats. <gasps> Idris Elba, right, let's go. Oh, this poor man. So I have highlighted some quotes here that I'm going to read out, but basically the article that Michelle found for this that said, oh, this will be a fun one, is that Idris Elba is in the new Cats movie that's coming out um, in December, I think, and he, like most of the world, has no idea what the story of this musical is. So on one of the late, like, late-night shows in the U.S., um, a host asked him what the show was about, and he said, and I quote, oh, wow, what a way to throw me under the bus. It's a, I mean, it's a classic. It's a big musical, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Guess it's about cats. Uh, how am I doing? <laughs> and then he said, it's one cat's journey toward what is essentially cat heaven, and the idea is that we all aspire to get to cat heaven. There's this young cat and she sort of gets taken on the story of how to get to cat heaven and what you should do to get into cat heaven. How am I doing? Does anyone else know what the story is? (laughs) And I mean, I just think this is hilarious. I think we might've mentioned in our last episode that my younger brother was actually in a high school production of cats. Mm -hmm. And so I went and saw it the weekend before I moved to Sydney. And when like we were talking about this as a family and my dad was like, oh, what's the story? My mum explained it that the oldest cat, whose name is Old Deuteronomy, chooses the next cat to ascend to cat heaven, to borrow just Idris Elba's words, um, because I guess they then get to ascend and come back. You know, cats have like nine lives or whatever. So it's so, basically sacrifice. No, it's an honour. Like the best cat gets to That's ascend. That's what cults and they say about sacrifice too. <laughs> I mean, sure, but like they choose once a year. So the whole so the whole show is based on a book of poems, which is about all these different cats. And I think the lead poem in the collection, I'm not 100% sure, is about jellical cats and the jellical ball. Yeah. So the jellical ball is like one night a year with the jellical moon or whatever, I'm basically just quoting the lyrics now, um, is <laughs> so the entire show is every single different cat singing to introduce themselves so that they might be chosen by old Deuteronomy. Without offending any Cats fans, there's basically no storyline. <laughs> I think everyone said that in the past two weeks yeah. since the trailer came out. So, Yeah. It's a very strange show. Um, you Made know, only stranger by the really weird CGI they've done on the movie. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I'm kind of changing my tune about the trailer and about the movie because it's just so weird and looks so weird that, you know, I can't look away. Like I still really want to see it. <laughs> so it's like a car crash. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, 
Oh Do you have anything else to say about Idris Elba and cats? No, I just really enjoyed that quote because, like, even the people who are <laughs> in it don't know what it's about. Like, oh, he that... has no idea. So Idris Elba is playing a cat called Macavity. Um, and I have seen the show before, but my most recent knowledge is based on this high school production I saw. <laughs> and a few times in the show, they just kind of go, oh, Macavity. And it's like, where is Macavity? But... Interestingly, McCavity doesn't sing his own song. Rum Tum Tugger does, I think. So unless they're changing that, I don't know if Idris Elba can sing. But um, <laughs> but Jason Derulo is Rum Tum Tugger, so that's cool. It's such a strange cast. It really is. I mean, it it is, but now I'm just looking at the cast on Google and knowing a little bit more about the show, it's oddly fitting. Yeah, man, am I changing my mind? Do I like <laughs> cats? Is this what's happening? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Okay, enough about cats. Let's move on. Um, okay, next topic. So our next topic is about the rise of the beach read and how popular books become, you know, six months to a year after they were originally published as everyone wants to read them over the summer. Um, and my first note about this is that in the, the article, yeah, in the Northern Hemisphere. So the summer we are talking about is now, basically, June, Which July, is why it was August, September. <laughs> yeah. So uh, before we get into it a bit too much, I did also have a note here that says, I was like, in Australia, our summer is over Christmas. Do we get all of the fancy hardbacks and gifts and other present books, as well as the lighter beach reads in our stores at the same time and I don't think we do I think everyone focuses on the you know all the biographies and that that come out mm. in December like for you to get them for your dad for Christmas yeah there's <laughs> a lot of like dad will love this for Christmas I think they do anything totally that will like sell well for a Christmas sort of thing yeah exactly they're gift books mm. Mm. but anyway so beat treats what are your thoughts um, I found this article fascinating more so for the way it talks about publishing and the differences. And like I said, this is so interesting to talk about because I'm over here and you're over there and we can see both perspectives. So yeah. um, basically the evolution of publishing, um, the year in publishing in England or in the Northern Hemisphere is that you'll get your hardbacks released in autumn so around like October, November for Christmas. And then they'll be reprinted, mm-hmm. reissued in the spring um, for summer reading. Um, usually paperbacks are cheaper and a lot of people at the moment, they made the point that what's what's doing well now is if that hardback has won lots of awards, it's like going to be a bestseller for paperback. People expect to see the awards on the paperback release. Yeah, so the article mainly focused on, you know, the idea of literary fiction and how, you know, these books sort of break out from the literary fiction and become more mainstream. And Um, I think we're seeing that with things like Normal People by Sally Rooney. I would say Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton, which has been a huge success in Australia. Um, Things like Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, um, Circe even by like, Madeline Miller. Yeah, and even like Eleanor Oliphant, I would – I to haven't extent, actually read that one although, myself. But mm, I think no, it was originally I, marketed as less literary, but 
Yeah, it won a lot of awards though, and um, that's I guess where it kind of became catapulted to a new sphere is because it it, it won a lot of um, and it did, but it didn't win literary awards. It won popular awards, but I'm going to talk about that when we talk about this. So um, (laughs) that would be now. (laughs) Yeah, no, I no, I just wanted to say though um, that they were they were talking in this article about the summer read and that whole reading evolution actually being over a century old. So the idea that you market books that people want to take on holiday with them is really Mm. fascinating. Um, So, yes, book prizes. The other thing is book clubs. So um, I've noticed that it's more of a thing in England than Australia. Maybe I just didn't pick up on it before, but there are a lot of literary prizes in Australia, things like um, the Miles Franklin Award, the Stella Prize, um, various premiers, literary awards, um, things like that, which are which I think are quite high acclaim for any book and any author. But what I've noticed over here is that they seem to have more like popular awards, like they have the like Costa Book of the Year Award, um, which I think if it's not voted on. I haven't actually looked, but I think it it's it seems to be more popular novels, not necessarily highbrow literary fiction, which I've always associated with things like The Booker, which I've always mm. looked at the, the books that win the Booker Prize and thought, that's too smart for me. Like, I'm not going to get that. Um, and I might be wrong. And I think some, there's been some criticism last year of The Booker for being not highbrow enough. So... It is interesting. Yes, though. that's right. I remember yeah. talking about that. Yeah, so it's interesting that these book prizes re- like sort of tr- um, drive readers to try new things and the idea that what you want when you have your paperback release is to have a bunch of stickers on it saying it won all these awards and that that will somehow convince people to, to buy the books. And when you go into a lot of bookshops too, um, obviously a lot of the books will be on the new release paperbacks will be on tables face up rather than on shelves. So you can like literally see all the awards that these books have won, which is popular and stuff like that. Um, Exactly. And that's a marketing thing again, you know, like you see all of the awards and, you know, all the things on there that say like, you know, even things that say like, um, I don't know, choice, like they have the ones that yeah. say like staff picks and things like that I in a lot of bookshops. And yes. Yeah. So all of those things, you know, people follow the crowd and they assume that all these other people have liked it. So they might like it too. And that, mm-hmm. you know, really adds to these, um, how popular these books can get once they, you know, once they've had a bit of recognition, they then go even crazier. Absolutely. Um, So to come back to Waterstones again, apparently now the Waterstones Book of the Month pick is considered more important, according to this article, it's considered more important than winning prizes um, because almost all of the literary fiction titles in the past few years are there because it was a Waterstones Pick of the Month, which I find absolutely amazing. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too because, you know, it just means that this book was, you know, put at the front of the bookshop and, Mm -hmm. again, I say, consumers don't know what they want. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then also the other one that's been huge is Reese Witherspoon's book club. So she has 1.1 yes. million followers on that. And that has been a huge thing for books once they're picked for that. Um, oh, totally. That's well, that's where like, the I mean, thing is just everywhere because she picked yeah. it. And that's another thing that's a bit interesting is like, we're both perhaps a little young to re- remember how big this was, but you know, like Oprah's book club was, yes. was that, that was, was like that as well. It mm-hmm. was incredibly huge. And all these books that were, I mean, you still hear it when you watch, you know, movies and TV shows and stuff. They're like, oh, Oprah picked this book. And they're like, everyone liked Oprah. So they just bought it and everything. And God, I would actually, now that I'm talking about this, I would love to know how much that affected, you know, what book, some of the books that she chose and some of the, how that affected their sales and popularity and awards and everything. It it might be different with something like Oprah or Reese Witherspoon's book clubs, but there's no doubt that the Waterstones one is, I want to say, purely marketing. Um, And that, to be quite cynical, is a deal with the publisher. So I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that those books aren't good, but it's it obviously comes down to relationships with publishers because at the end of the day, publishing is a business. So Mm. I'm sure that there would be a lot of publishers trying to get their book picked for book of the month to, to make it really sell. Um, And then, you know, it gets the stickers on it as well saying, you know, Waterstones pick of the month or whatever. And like you said, it just sort of sells it to people as something that they should trust that they can they can read. Um, yeah, because yeah. they trust the brand. They trust Waterstones or they trust Dimmix or they yeah. trust, you know, Booktopia or whatever. I don't know who else has these <laughs> book of the month's picks. But, um, um, you know, so there I think you go. I, again, I think it's – I don't think I've seen it anywhere as um, – regimented as a Waterstones. Um, I personally like staff picks where you see them written on the thing, but this Waterstones one, um, the, the quote in this article is, and obviously we will be putting all the articles in the show notes so you can read them. They're really great reads. The Waterstones book of the month promotion in particular is more important than a prize because that book becomes a guaranteed bestseller for the month that is promoted by the chain. And then the quote is, almost every literary fiction title in the summer months in the past few years is there because it has been featured as a Waterstones book of the month. And it's just amazing, the power of that. I mean, I definitely agree. And I bet, you know, in in some ways when we come back to, you know, how these were talking about these literary fiction books and how they're often deemed intimidating, it it proves that, you know, just because it was the book of the month at Waterstones, like people still read these books and enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, part of that article was also talking about how if they're marketed, you know, correctly, for lack of a better word, and they then they can be enjoyed by... Cover. Exactly. And then they can be enjoyed by a broader audience. And I think, you know, really good examples for this that I can remember was they talked about One Day and Normal People, and both of those have quite simple but pretty covers that, you know, are generally appealing to mm-hmm. everyone our last yes. fun one the one that we all wish had happened to us oh my god I wish this had happened so <laughs> can I read it I so, yeah okay you so, read it because I won't be able to explain <laughs> it as clearly 
Harry Potter book bought for £1 sells for £28,500 at auction. So a rare original copy of the first Harry Potter book has sold for 28500 which is unbelievable. Like, this was um, <laughs> this was a I believe it this one was the nineteen ninety seven book and it had two errors in it and it was sold by Staffordshire Libraries for one pound about twenty years ago. So it was one of those like you get it off the library library sale rack. Yeah, so if I remember correctly the article said it was they'd printed like 500 copies in this first print run and over 300 of them went to libraries yeah I think so I'll 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 get to that because the best bit is that after the person bought the the library book it then lay in a cupboard at the owner's home until it was discovered by auctioneers Mm. so the owner Um, had an office worker from Staffordshire had bought the book from their local library to read on holiday. Um, 300 of those 500 copies in the first print run were sent to libraries. And the first edition could be identified by two errors, including philosophers being spelt um, a slightly different way and um, something saying one wand as well. So there's like two... Little errors in Harry's in Harry's Hogwarts letter, how it has the list of things he needs to get. So it says like one pewter cauldron, you know, mm-hmm. two sets of school robes or whatever. It said one wand twice. Mm-hmm. And it also has funny the different um, illustration of Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, the one where I know that's like some great joke amongst Harry Potter fans is like because I have an edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone that has the different um, drawing of Dumbledore too. Mm, mine too. Not like, yeah. It, so he has short brown hair and a short brown beard and moustache and though Dumbledore is described in the book as <laughs> having long white hair, but that wasn't fixed until a few years later, I don't think. I'm just going to double check in my copy <laughs> that it says <laughs> one wand once. Maybe I have 30 grand lying on my hands. No, I don't think because – I don't think is, I do. The other thing, if this was the hardback edition oh, too. No, it doesn't. Oh. Mine says one wand, one cauldron, one set glass or crystal files. I don't even know what that is. One telescope and one set of brass scales. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that um, Peter from The Potter Collector – may have an edition of this um it'd be really cool if he did I'm sure I'm sure he does if anyone has an edition of this it would have to be him but how cool is that that this office worker just bought it for their holiday like they weren't a collector they're just buying it for their holiday I, know. I love that but they also bought it 20 years ago before this was a thing I know Didn't, that's like, like <laughs> it's just so funny you couldn't because... have known it would be worth 30 grand 20 oh, years ago of course not of course not I just yeah it's amazing god it's just incredible I know I love that story I'm so glad for that whoever that was yeah yeah also support your local libraries guys I know love (laughs) the library I think that's (laughs) the perfect place to end it on yeah love your libraries love your bookshops 
all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, read read literary fiction even if you're a bit intimidated. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's one other thing that we need to say though. Okay, so as we've mentioned a couple of times in this episode already, um, you know, we all know that Michelle has just moved to the UK and I strangely and quickly um, have moved to Sydney and a lot has changed since we first started doing this podcast. Um, Which was like two, two years ago? It was two, two years ago. Our second two. birthday was on the 31st of July. So it's, yeah, Harry Potter's (laughs) birthday, exactly. That was done on purpose. So, yeah, so a lot has changed since we first started doing this and we are, you know, by no means are we going to stop um, producing this podcast, but we are going to take a break. So what we're going to do is change to doing, like, seasons rather than continually releasing episodes, like, weekly or then we change to fortnightly. So we're going to take a break for a bit. And we're going to do our next season starting in October. So we will, you know, let you all know sort of what's going to happen around that later as we <laughs> finalise all the details and the plan and everything. The rough plan um, is to run from the start of October um, up until Christmas, sort of. So and then, yeah, and then yeah. like take another break. So yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll see what happens with there. But so for the moment, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in your ears in October. Yeah. Um. But until then, everything will be updated on our social media, on Instagram mainly at Better Words Pod. Go follow. And you can also follow both of us as well. Our um handles are in the Better Words bio um because yes. you'll like stay up to date with us a lot more with our individual accounts but we are excited to bring you a fresh season we just thought that it was the best thing for our mental health really um mm. and yeah just some big life changes going on and we just need to sort of accommodate that while still being able to do something we really enjoy so that's that's the the way that we've decided to go and we're excited to come back for a new season in October. Yeah. Yeah, so stay tuned for all of that and we'll be chatting to you guys later. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Better Words. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review on iTunes. It really would mean the world to us. And you can also find us at our website, betterwordspodcast.com and on social media at betterwordspod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Bye. Bye.